so our scripture for today is Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and that's on page 810 in your black Bibles. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Joseph Ray. I'm on staff here and a deacon as well. Um, really glad to have the chance to do this with you guys. Uh, I've had a couple of you this morning ask me if I'm feeling well. Apparently, I look sick. Um, but uh, I'm going to say that's a combination of, I always kind of look like this under my glasses. Um, I'm very pale, and so my, my eye bags stick out. Uh, and then I also was out of state for a bit this week and uh, didn't get a lot of sleep for like two nights. And so some combination of the two of those things. Uh, I'm not sick that I know of. I'm not going to pass out uh, while I'm preaching, Lord willing. Um, I'll let you know if I feel like it's going to change. But... Um, Let me pray now, and we'll get into the text. Dear God, um, we we do thank you that like we have sung and prayed um, and confessed together today that you are righteous, which means that you are absolutely holy, that you are absolutely just, and that you, uh, you understand the way that the world is supposed to work because you have defined it. You have defined what is good. And you are utterly good. And we thank you that even though we don't deserve your righteousness, we don't deserve to see it, we don't deserve to have it, as we're going to unfold through this text, you, you call us to pursue it, but you also graciously give it to us. And so I pray that we would see the, the need to pursue righteousness from this text today. And I pray that wherever we are in our relationship with you right now, that you would help us see who you are, and that you would give us a vision for what it means to be righteous in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our Sermon on the Mount series, and we've uh, just been through what Kent described as Jesus' pump-up speech, where he tells his disciples, the people who are with him, this is who you are, and this is what it means for you to live into the world. So he's given kind of a general call for what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so he's going to zoom in here. This passage is a transition to a longer stretch where he's going to lay out very specifically, a lot more specifically, what it looks like to live in God's new kingdom and what the principles are that kind of undergird and define that. And what he's going to say, what he kind of hints at in the first part is he says that is connected intimately to what he calls the law and the prophets, which is shorthand for all of the Old Testament. So we've kind of already made this decision historically. It's the front part of your Bible. Everything that comes before Matthew is the Old Testament. It was the word of God and the story of God as revealed to the Hebrews and the Jews. And so he'll also call it the law. It includes stories. It includes poetry. It includes songs and worship. Um, It also includes commands. And that's kind of what he's zooming in on here is what relationship he wants us to have with what he calls God's law and what that means for him. 
And that's, that was a very significant question for these first century Jews. Um, we're not asking that precise question, maybe, but we, we ask a similar one. Because what they saw of Jesus' ministry so far is that Jesus seemed to violate what they knew of the law. Um, the law could be kind of understood as if God is sort of the, the righteous or holy center of the universe, then he established the law. He gave these things to sort of set a fence and a boundary around himself so that the people who are close to him, what it means to be close to God, um, this is what that looks like, and this is how you know if you're in it or if you're not. Uh, by that time and that day, their, a lot of their context had changed. Uh, a lot of law was given when they were kind of a sovereign nation, and so there were civil government laws. Um, they weren't a sovereign nation anymore. They were under kind of they were occupied territory. And so some of the things had already changed. Um, their sacrificial system, their whole system of worship rooted around a temple had kind of had to go through some changes as well because they'd had two temples destroyed, and they were on uh, kind of a third temple. Uh, again, different system. But the uh, they still believed that as God's people, we are called to live inside this fence, inside the law. And there were even at the time, uh, these people that Jesus mentions, the scribes and Pharisees, they were people who took those boundaries and they sort of moved the goalposts in a little bit. And they said, it's not enough just to be kind of in that outer area. That's kind of a gray zone. And so we're going to set up even more intense, even more precise laws and say that to really be faithful to God, You've got to keep these things. And so these were the super religious, the super holy people in that day. They were the people that everyone would say, if anyone's keeping the law, it's those guys. Hopefully I'm in the gray zone. I know people who are way out there. Um, but what they created was this sort of inner circle of uh, people considered to be God's people. who were They were self-righteous, as we're going to see. They were arrogant. They condemned and looked down on others. And it also raised the question, since Jesus hung out with people who were either in the gray zone or outside the gray zone, um, since those are the people that he gathered to himself, and the way that he taught, the way that he acted, seemed to violate, definitely violated that inner circle, seemed to violate the outer circle. It raised the question for them of, does the Old Testament law mean anything? Does this mean anything to us now if we're going to follow Jesus instead? Now again, I, I don't know, most of us in here, I'm taking a wild guess, are not Jewish, and so we're not asking that exact question. But we ask a related question because um, whatever culture we come from, whatever beliefs we would say we have or don't have, all of us want to know what, in a sense, the law of the universe is. If there is one, we want to know how it works. Um, even if we're people who say, you know, like, we should all just follow our hearts and do what's inside us. Uh, you know, if someone follows his heart and jacks our car, um, our story changes a little bit. Uh, we're going to feel a little bit differently about saying that's the law everyone should live by. And so what we see is we tend to sort ourselves out into two kinds of people. We say, I want to know the law because I want to not just keep that law, but I want to make extra super laws on top of it. And so I know that I'm doing right. I know that I'm in whatever inner circle I'm trying to get around. And I can be, I can be a little bit proud of myself. And I can look a little bit down on people who are further outside than me. And so we have kind of these super rules, the law-keeping people who want to seem righteous. And we also have people who say, I want to know what the law is so I can break it. And I can tell, show the world how much I break the law, how much I don't care about it, how much I'm better than it because it doesn't define me. It doesn't hold me back. I don't need law. But those people still want to know what's right because if they're inside, if they find themselves inside the circle, then they get kind of anxious. And they say, like, oh, I'm keeping a law. 
what do I do? Um, but we see, we have kind of law-breaking types who say, I wish there was no law, or I knew the law so I could violate it. We have the law keepers, the really intense ones. And so Jesus is saying, one, he's answering the question of what is the law kind of that undergirds the universe? And then he's saying what he wants his people, how he wants us to relate to that law. That's what he's addressing in this. And so what we're going to see, we're going to walk through is, uh, in a sense, four steps or four stages of how we're supposed to relate to the law and understand the law, which means kind of the summary of the teachings and the uh, character of God, the stories in the Old Testament. And uh, that's going to really feed into and define how we live as well. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to see about how we relate to the law is that the law claims our submission. Um, I've got, Ethan, if you would put that up, it's the first slide. The law claims our submission. So in verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest Greek letter, not a dot, which is sort of a slash on a Hebrew letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so he says, first, I want you to know, you think about the law, it is more real, it is more enduring and more concrete than heaven and earth themselves. The world had a beginning point, the world as we know it will have an end point, the law is under all of that, is deeper than all of that, and is more real, more substantial than all of that. And he applies that for us. He says, therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so what he says is, if the law is as deep and substantial and enduring as it is, then he says that we, as people who happen to live in this earth, who live in the world that God has created, we are bound to submit to the law. Um, the point is probably going to really going to... Uh, Raise your hackles if you tend to be on the left of things, kind of politically, culturally. Um, if you just tune me out, the next point kind of gets at people on the right. And so bear with me. Everyone's going to be a little offended um, by the time we're done today. But that's, that's what he says, is that there is this law that God has given um, through the Old Testament and that we see kind of traced and uh, working through it. That is the law of all humankind. That is the law that all of us are called to submit to, that we are claimed by whether we like it or not, because we are created by the God who gave that law, and we belong to him. And so that's kind of where he wants us to start, that, uh, you know, that verse 19, he says that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's a play on words that really means you are out of the kingdom of heaven. You are out of God's people and God's will if you are not willing to be claimed by the law. And so the first thing he says is you have to be inside the law to belong to me. Now, um, we obviously, you would say, if you know, if you've read, tried to read Leviticus, it's heavy sledding. Um, there's stuff in there about eating shellfish. There's stuff about wearing like uh, cloth of two different threads. Um, so does that mean we're supposed to keep all of that? I'm, I'm probably violating some principle of uh, Leviticus right now. I'm, I'm not even sure. Um, there's a lot in there. But um, uh, short answer is no. First of all, the, the law as God originally gave it and kind of wove it through, it addressed three big categories. First, it addressed uh, the worship of God through his temple. 
And so there's this whole system of sacrifices, of offerings that are given to the temple, of kind of uh, cleanliness laws that tell who can and who shouldn't be in the temple. And there's a lot of good in that, and even grace in that. I would love to unpack that someday. But uh, the short of that is that Jesus, uh, as we're going to see, he fulfilled all of those things by becoming God's temple on earth. And so we don't follow those laws anymore because that's not where we worship God. We meet God in and through the person of Jesus. And so that's why we don't talk about the sacrifices and things like that. Um, In the same way, uh, God created one national kingdom. And so he said, my people are bounded not just by uh, worship, but they are a nation. They're one particular country out there. Um, Jesus' kingdom isn't that. That's what people expected of him. They expected a political revolution, a political kingdom. And he said, no, that's not what I'm building. I'm building a spiritual kingdom. I'm building people who are a kingdom, uh, or of a kingdom that's going to come one day from heaven itself and fill the earth. I'm not building a particular nation state. And so in the same way, those civil laws, um, they can be informative, they're interesting. We don't keep them because that's not who God's people are. Um, those are things that are sorted out in the New Testament. That's not cognitive dissonance. That's, uh, those decisions are 2,000 years old. So um, those are two dimensions we don't keep at the law anymore. But there's a third set of dimensions that regulate um, our moral state. So how we relate to God, what it means to relate to God, how we relate to other people. And in those sets of commands, you see those again and again through Scripture, even in the New Testament. They are developed, they are built out, Jesus even is going to go on and intensify them in our, uh, uh, our next sermon and the next few sermons that we preach. He goes on and does this in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we see is the moral dimensions of the law, they are upheld. And so the vision of what it means to relate to God, what it means to relate to my fellow human beings, that's consistent across testaments. That's consistent across the board. And Jesus even summarizes it in uh, Matthew 22. If you would flip over, Matthew 22, page 828. Jesus gives us kind of the two commands that summarize the whole thing. And uh, I'm going to read starting in verse 36, Matthew 22. Uh, A lawyer asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus says is that everything in the Old Testament, all the examples, all the stories, all the commands, they flow from these two principles. Love God with everything that you have in you and love your neighbor with the same care and concern that you give to yourself. Um, If you do these things, he said, this is what it means to keep the law. This is what it looks like. And so for him to tell us, then that we are to be bound to submit to that law means that that's what God calls us to first. He calls us to submit to those two basic commands. One way that I'm, uh, I'm workshopping this in my life right now is um, I, uh, I didn't used to think that I had an anger problem until I had kids. Um, we have three children. Our third was born before our first turned three, so we had three under three. And so uh, I was ticking along pretty fine. I'm an easygoing guy. You know, it's like there were other issues I had. That wasn't one of them. But if, like, you take Joseph's heart, you insert three children under three, and shake, which is what it feels like to have three kids under three. And you st- there's a lot of anger that stirs up in there. There's a lot of stuff that was done in there that didn't seem to be there before. And so 
you know, we can laugh about it, and Alice and I do laugh about it, because our kids, they can, they can be infuriating, and some of the things they do are deliberately awful. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, there, Jesus is going to go on to say in the next sermon, um, you know, you have heard it was said, you shall not murder. And uh, I have not murdered any of my children. You know, we had three, we still have the same three. So, um, all right, I could say, man, all right, I'm good there. But he says, if you, he goes on, he says, but if you are angry without cause with someone in your heart, then you have as good as murdered them. You have said, through your anger to this person, they should not exist. They should not be a part of my life right now. They don't belong in my created order and my kingdom. That's what anger is. Whether it means to punish someone or just wall them off, it is saying this person doesn't belong with me. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I can, I can laugh about the little things I've done, but at the same time, I have to come back in and say, but really, if I respond harshly to uh, one of my kids asking for another cookie, or if I just sort of move them away from me when they're crying, they've been crying for ages and I, there's no apparent reason why, then what I've done is that same thing. That I don't have the right to nurture anger or act out of anger to my child. That's not loving to them. And so I have to stop first and say, the law stops me. And the law says, this has to be dealt with. So that's the first thing that the law does. And it raises the question, Ethan, if you would put it up, Um, on the slide, it raises the question, what's one part of my life that needs to be submitted to God's law? Um, We could ask, what are all the dimensions? And, you know, we could get a lot of answers. But um, for applying this in this sermon, um, think about what's what's one thing. Maybe you know it yourself. You know the problem. Maybe you could get someone, a a spouse or a roommate, to tell you, it's like, hey, what's what's the biggest problem that you see in my life, the biggest dimension that is not submitted to God's law. But that's where God wants us to start in seeing and processing the law. And so it may be anger, but it could be sexual immorality. It could be pornography. Um, It could be substance abuse. It could be envy and gossip. But there's going, there are going to be dimensions of your lives, and different ones will come up through time, where something kind of rears its head, and you say, this doesn't belong. Because God says this doesn't belong. And so that's where God wants us to start. So that's the first step. The law claims our submission. But what the law goes on to do, it doesn't just say, all right, here's how you're supposed to behave, and here's the the path of external conformity, so that you can dress a certain way, you can talk a certain way, you can, uh, you know, use the right phrases to where everyone thinks everything is all right. Because that's possible. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They talked the right way. They talked holy. Uh, but you can do that on, for the left as well. You can talk, uh, uh, you know, you can tweet appropriately angry things or ironically angry things about, uh, you know, whatever is going on in the White House right now. Um, but uh, you, you can do those things. You can use the code so that the people around you, the right people, think you're righteous, think that you're close to the circle. And so what Jesus says in verse 20 is addressed to those people, and it would have left the audience just scratching their heads and silent. He says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, not comes close to, not matches, unless it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, not you'll be provisionally in trouble, but there you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus holds up 
what were seen as the most righteous people that there were. And he says, unless you're more righteous than them, you're never getting in. You're not getting into God's people. You're not going to belong. And so all of them would have been floored. The Pharisees and scribes would have been floored. The people who looked up to the Pharisees and scribes would have been floored. The people who uh, were initially kind of stunned and gripped by him saying he affirms the law, he's now saying he's intensifying its demands. And so that raises the question then of what, what does he mean? If these are the holiest people on earth, what does it mean that they're not enough, that they're not good enough? What Jesus is hinting at is something that he develops more fully later on down the line, uh, that the law is meant for something other than external conformity. If you would turn to uh, page 829, so back where we had been, um, we'll read a few verses of Matthew 23. So going ahead from 22 to 23. And I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So what he says is external conformity isn't what God has ever been after. The people who look clean, who talk clean, you know, see and don't see the right movies, whatever, uh, whatever the standard is, that's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us, he says here, is there are weightier matters to the law, and ultimately it comes down to the inside, to what is going on in your heart. And so the second thing that the law does is the law convicts our heart. That's what God gave it to do. Um, he didn't give it so we would know the standard, just so we would know the standard. He did give it for that. But what happens is when we reflect on the law and we see that I'm not just supposed to have this external code of conformity, I'm supposed to love this and I'm supposed to keep it from my heart out. I'm one, I'm going to find out that righteousness, that submission to God is much deeper than I thought it was going to be and feels much more impossible than I thought it was going to be. And so uh, for my own example, um, you know, with my, uh, my anger towards my kids, um, I, I have done some reflection on it. I've talked about it with RMC. I've processed it through journaling. And the big thing for me that comes out is that I have this idol of comfort, that I have a certain way that I want my life to go and I want my life to feel. And it includes like a lot of headspace and a lot of like physical and emotional margin and uh, a lot of peace and quiet. And y- you don't get any of those things with three kids uh, this close together. I have none of them anymore. Uh, and so what happens is now that those things are gone, that I find myself wanting that, feeling like I deserve that, and feeling like my kids are taking that from me. And so the dynamic in my heart is this, this worship of comfort that these kids are violating. They are violating the law of Joseph's kingdom, which is Joseph shall be comfortable. And because of that, I get furious. I get mad. I get harsh when um, I feel like they're taking this from me. And so I dig into my heart, and what I find as I uh, process my anger is I find this deep and growing conviction that it's not just that one thing is not right in my heart that's going to be fixed with some practices, that there's something deep that's wrong in my heart. And I would argue that most every other big issue that we have in life 
is going to come down to something like that too. Um, again, sexual immorality, pornography, there's all kinds of potential reasons that people go to that, but there's going to be something, if that's your problem that you have, that there's a reason you go to it. Or if we find ourselves gossiping about people, it's because probably on some level, either we envy them or we feel good when other people are brought down below us. And so God wants us to take his law and use it to critique and interrogate our own hearts. And what we'll find will convict us. We'll find that we need real righteousness that comes much more deeply than external conformity. And so the kind of application question there, Ethan, if you would put it up, is where is my heart on this issue? What ideas, loves, or habits are holding me back from loving this, or keeping me in this pattern that I don't want? What are the dynamics in my heart that produce it? That's the third, or the second uh, use of the law, movement of the law. The third thing, um, there's going to be four, so usually I have three-point sermons, I have a four-point sermon, um, hopefully that's okay. Um, third thing the law is meant to do, so we take this conviction, and then we say, all right, well, face value, Jesus says that my righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, I have looked into my heart, it is filthy, um, I guess I'm out, I don't really know what to do about that. Um, but what we find, and the reason that we find Jesus hanging out with people who were on the boundaries or over the boundaries of righteousness in Israel, is that Jesus doesn't work that way. He doesn't come to people um, and say, your heart is a mess, get out of here. What he does is he, he sees those people, and there's something in his mission that drew those people who knew their hearts weren't right to follow him, to be close to him. And he did. He welcomed them in. He spent time not with uh, you know, like ongoing prostitutes, but for women who had been in prostitution. There were multiple sort of ex-prostitutes in Jesus's kind of inner circle, big inner circle of disciples. There were people who had histories of violence, histories of theft, histories of all kinds of things who became his followers. And that's because there was something in his person and his message that they, they didn't make them feel like those things were okay, but it made them feel like he still wanted them close. That's what we see. Um, the, the sermon that I almost preached this morning, every like Saturday afternoon, I have another sermon idea come, and it's like, I should preach that sermon. I can get it ready in 12 hours. And I, uh, when I'm wise, I don't preach that sermon. But the sermon that I almost preached this morning was just to walk through uh, and unpack the first part, or verse 17, where Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, because that is just rich and beautiful. It means that Jesus is the one who finishes the story that the Old Testament leaves off, the story of God's redemption of a sinful and just messed up people who keep failing, and God keeps drawing them back, and it kind of raises this tension and question of, why do we stay so messed up, and what is God ever going to do about it? Jesus is the one who finishes that. Or um, all the promises of the Old Testament uh, Matthew uses the word fulfill like 15 times in his gospel. He's used it four or five times just up to this point in the first four chapters. And over and over he says, this thing that happened to Jesus or that Jesus did happened to fulfill what was spoken in the prophet. And so all of these promises of God's action, what he was going to do in the world to deal with the sins of his people, what he was going to do to heal and redeem and rescue and kind of start the world over, those things are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all of those past promises in God. 
all just all the figures, the, um, the figures of kings. Jesus is like the final good king. All the figures of prophets who brought God's word to the world. Jesus is God's word that came into the world. And so there's all of these glorious things that are true of Jesus. But the, the one that I want to focus in on today is these two dimensions of Jesus' work where one, he took the commandments of the law, all of them, and he fulfilled them by keeping them perfectly. Jesus was the only human being And he was able to do it because he was both a human being and God the Son who kept the law perfectly, who perfectly loved um, God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who perfectly loved his, uh, his neighbors, us, as himself. Not just his neighbors, his enemies. And so Jesus perfectly satisfied the righteous demands of the law by being perfectly obedient. And so that's like, well, that's, that's great for Jesus. But uh, the other thing that he did was he took all of the curses of the law, all of the warnings that God gives us through that of what God does to uh, people who don't keep it. And he took all of those curses on himself as well. He took them on him when he was crucified. Um, you know, there's a, a, a law in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was crucified on a tree. So he took that curse And more than that, he took the curses of God's own anger and swallowed them up himself. He took the curses of being abandoned by God, left to our own devices with no hope, no joy, no love from our Heavenly Father. He was abandoned in his death on the cross. He took the curses of the law, the punishments of the law, on himself in his death. And then when he rose again from the dead, he rose to a life that he now offers freely to all of his people. And so when we come to Jesus with the conviction of our hearts, with the fact that we see suddenly, I'm more sinful and in deeper and more convoluted ways than I knew before, what do I do with it? He tells us, I took care of it. I died for those sins on the cross. I absorbed the wrath for that. I owned that punishment. And I give you in return my righteousness. I give you my right standing with the Father, and I give it freely. And I give it even though you discovered something you've been doing for years and had no idea. I give forgiveness freely over and over and over again. We're going to work on this, he says. We're going to deal with this. We're going to walk through it, but we're going to walk through it with a bedrock understanding that we are forgiven, that we are reconciled back to God, are in the innermost circle that there is. We're as far in as we can go despite what we've done. Because of what Jesus has done, we are God's children if we come to him in faith, if we give ourselves over to him and depend on him. And so that's what one thing the law is really meant to do, that that conviction in our hearts isn't meant to drive us away from God. It does drive some people away from God. But what Jesus wants us to do is he says, come in. Come in with your conviction. Come in with your burden. Come in with your sense of guilt or shame. And the, the part of the message that offends kind of the, the button-down religious people is that that means anyone who has done anything is in and is in immediately and is in for good and they're not second-class citizens. They are in the family. We become in the family. And so what Jesus, what God wants to do with the law is he drives us not away from himself, but to himself. And he gives us hope in the promise of the gospel, in the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation, the promise of resurrection and new creation, eternal life, without any of these things that are weighing our hearts down or burdening us. That's what he gives us 
because he's earned it for us. And so the question that this point leads us to ask ourselves is, Ethan, if you would throw up, the law humbles us before Christ was the point. I didn't say that explicitly. That's what it does. Uh, What's a promise or truth of Jesus that makes him worth loving more than this? And so for me with my kids, my idolatry of comfort um, can look uh, through the gospel, look through all the promises, and I can find truths like Jesus, the, the true son of God the Father, died and gave himself so that I could be adopted as God's child, so that I become God's beloved son when I was an enemy of him, not an occasionally annoying thing. I am one of the people who crucified his son in my heart. He still welcomes me and draws me in. And so that, uh, that's not meant to, to level guilt on me. That's meant to strengthen me and encourage me because it's beautiful how enduring and permanent and uh, just certain God's love is for me. And so we can do that with all kinds of things. With, um, you know, again, some of these things. Sexual immorality, we can look at the fact that Jesus has purified us once for all time in the eyes of God the Father. He has made us completely pure in God's eyes. And so we can work and strive out of that. If we envy others and so we gossip about them because we envy them, God tells us that you are as far up into the kingdom as anyone can go, and so are they. That all of us, none of us is better than one another. All of us can belong to him, can be this full, rich, richly loved sons and daughters in him. And so we, we look to those promises, and we let those promises fuel uh, this fourth step, which is the final use of the law. The fourth thing that God gives the law to do is it clarifies our new life. And so what God does with me in my anger is he, he doesn't just say, all right, you have anger in your heart, you've been convicted by it, that's good, you've come to me, you're forgiven, everything's okay, go keep being angry and short-tempered with your kids. Because if I really get the beauty of the law, if I get a vision for my life that doesn't let me off the hook for being as angry as I want to be, but that uh, would lead me to be a loving father to children, then I'm not going to want to stay in my sin. I'm not going to want to go back to exactly the same thing, but now with the feeling that I've got some kind of insurance. I'm going to want change. I'm going to want to be conformed more into the image of Christ. I'm going to want to become a father that their children remember as loving and patient and kind, who dealt with their, you know, disciplined them, but did it with grace and did it with love. And so what I need is I need a guide. I need something on the back end of all of these things that will give me a path forward, not to just change everything immediately. I need to learn more about anger. I need to learn more about parenting. And I can find those things by going back to the law. And so I find things like uh, the statement that children are a blessing of God, that, these, that my children are a gift from God to me, and that they are, in their own right, eternal sons and daughters in Christ, Lord willing, one day. And so they are a gift that God has given me that are meant to be received that way. Or I can read things about the, the beauty of patience or um, you know, a proverb like that a, a man without self-control is like a city without walls, open to attack. And so I can let that say, all right, wisdom means growing in self-control. So studying the law now, it doesn't put the burden back on me, but it leads me forward. It shows me what liberated life looks like it looks like the pattern that we see in the law. It looks like the things that God establishes, that the stories show, that the Psalms sing about. It looks like those things 
The law clarifies my path forward. And so when we finally reach that point of uh, feeling forgiven, of celebrating that, uh, um, our liberty and our adoption in Christ, then we can come back to the law, and it's not uh, just a burden anymore. It's not a weight. It's, it's a path. It's a guide to what it means to live in Christ. And that's the, the fourth question, Ethan, if you would put that up there. Just how can I live more richly in Christ than I have been? And so again, whatever the, the issue is that you've kind of processed through this, God's law has something to say about it. And it's something that, again, if, you, if we can accept that baseline of God's grace and God's permanent forgiveness, it's not meant to hurt us again, it's meant to free us. Even if it pushes us, even if it feels like something that requires effort and movement, it's toward liberation. Just like learning to become more patient is effort, but it's effort that's a more liberated life for me than I'd had before. And so that's what God wants for us. That's the fourth thing that he does with the law. Um, Ethan, if you would put up the last thing, I just wanted to, to close with uh, kind of a diagram of how this works because this is uh, a cycle. And so if we start on the left side, we see kind of the first step that law, the law claims our life. And so it says something about our lives that's meant to be submitted to God. And it moves on that if we process it well, we process it in our community, it gives us conviction of our heart. So not that we can build up this sort of uh, rickety kind of semblance of obedience, but that we can see what's really going on in our heart that needs to be changed. It leads us to dependence on Christ. In humility, we come to him and we say, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace and your reconciliation. And then finally, it gives us a clarified new life so that, uh, again, it's not a four-step magical transformation, but that's the path forward to start growing out of whatever I was convicted about. This is not a diagram of the Christian life for beginners. This is a diagram of the Christian life uh, on this side of eternity. Um, Until you die, you will be living in the cycle or you will be refusing to live in the cycle. Um, uh, That's that's how we deal with sin. We're going to see more come as we go. We're going to see maybe it's more depths of sin. Maybe it's new kinds of sin arise, like mine did, uh, you know, almost exactly three years ago, four years ago. Um, But... uh, we're going to see things come up that we need to process. And this is what God wants us to do with it. So just the, the last thing that I'll say before we go to communion is I would encourage you guys to um, let yourself be asked this question. Just that, that first question. Uh, maybe you ask it to yourself. You process it w- with God. Maybe you do it in your community or the people close to you. But what is some dimension of my life right now that needs to be surrendered over to God? And then kind of go through the rest of the process. Um, Community. So our missional communities, our discipleship groups are where this kind of thing is supposed to happen. And they're where it does happen. Um, Even if you haven't had these labels for it, if you have lived your life in the gospel and through the gospel, you have done these things. And so it's just meant to be kind of a, a help and a guide to take to your community and say, how can I live, uh, not to become self-righteous or arrogant, but to live as the person God wants me to be, in the way that God, the vision that God has for me, the good life that he has laid out. So that's what I'd encourage, close encouraging you guys to consider and to do. And the, uh, just a, a bedrock for our faith in that, um, kind of a bedrock reminder of God's grace that strengthens us for this, because it is something we need strength for, is communion. Uh, we take communion every service, um, 
we break off bread from a loaf, we dip it in a cup of juice, and we take it. And um, if, uh, and, but for God's people, for people who have placed their faith in Jesus, it's more than that because it's a symbolic participation again in Jesus' death for us and the life that he gave to us. So his body was broken on the cross, and uh, at his last meal with his disciples before this happened, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Then he took a cup, and he said, this cup, this wine, is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you, that your sin required my death, but I freely give my death and my life to you because of my love for you. And so taking communion is a physical reminder of that reality for those who have faith in Jesus. And so if you do, whether you're a guest, church, whatever church you're from, you're welcome to take that. If you don't have that faith, this meal does nothing for you. And so I would just invite you to stay in your seat. Um, it would be just bread and just juice, and they're not that high quality. Um, they're, they're, they're fine. They're not bad. But um, uh, the, the, sim- yeah, um, <laughs> the better thing that you could do than taking acceptable bread and juice is, uh, is you could stay in your seat, and you could think about these things. If there is some dimension of your life, that is laid on your heart, that you feel something of the law weighing on you. You think, what do I need to do with this right now? What is God asking me to do? Or if you're considering taking Christ, whether that's from a a position of burden or from maybe this is just all new to you and you're thinking about it, think about what it would look like to place your faith in Jesus, maybe for the first time, and to come to know him, be reconciled to him. Um, There, uh, we would Love to help you with that. We'll have men and women on the other side of the curtain there, the pipe and drape, to pray with you through anything that you're processing, um, whether it's these matters or something else. And um, we'll take communion. We'll um, have a couple other elements, and then we'll be done. So let me pray now. Dear God, um, we thank you for the gift of your law. We thank you that because you have a vision for the world, because you have a character that needs to be revealed, you have revealed those things to us. And Lord, if they feel like a weight, um, they are your will and our hearts, there's something in our hearts that does not want them. But we thank you that you have made a path to forgiveness and to reconciliation through your son, Jesus. And we thank you that that reconciliation gives us strength to pursue your law with renewed strength and with humility in a right mind. So I, I pray for all of us today that we would see you a little bit more clearly and that you would equip us and prepare our hearts and move us to live a little more fully into your will for the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name.